No, he was an entrepreneur and uh, and designer. He uh, uh, had his own company called Lear Incorporated, which he sold in 1962 to Siegler. And in 1956, he was interested in uh, building an airplane, actually modifying a Lockheed 18 transport. Uh, and he put on bigger engines and a few uh, additions and it became one of the very first uh, executive uh, twin-engine transports. It was called the Learstar. And uh, then in 1958, uh, he wanted to build a uh, a twin-engine, uh, another twin-engine airplane. And it actually started out as a twin-engine pusher uh, with propellers. And Mitsubishi was gonna gonna build it, but then it evolved into a twin-engine jet and uh, became the Learjet. Uh, we lived in Switzerland at the time, and he was going to try and build it there. Uh, but when he got to uh, got to going, uh, the, the Swiss weren't uh, as aggressive. We were. Uh, they didn't uh, have anything that they were turning out uh, two or three hundred uh, types a year. And so he moved all the to tooling and engineering to Wichita, Kansas, where he had his pick of engineers. And uh, that was in 1962. We made the first flight October 7th, 1963, and uh, went on from there. He sold the company in 1967 to Gage Rubber, and... It made, I think, changed hands another seven or eight times uh, until now Bombardier holds it, and I think they've had it for, for many years. But they kept making uh, different uh, models, uh, and uh, my dad took the money he made from uh, Gates Rubber for the sale of the airplane and uh, decided to build a steam engine because he thought that uh, steam was the way to go uh, for engines in a car. But he was starting from ground zero, and he didn't know a lot about it. And uh, he more or less pissed away $7 million. Uh, when he finally found out what Howard Hughes found out, when Howard Hughes tried to build a steam car back in 1935, <clears throat> that the horsepower is on the condensed size of the condenser and uh, to make uh, enough horsepower to run an automobile the whole car has to be the condenser the the uh, the frame the top, the bottom, the trunk the hood, everything and of course Hughes knew that that wasn't going to work but my dad didn't read Hughes' book and, uh, and didn't uh, didn't know about that and he went through seven million dollars Uh, 
100 miles an hour and uh, have great operating procedures. But he died in 1977 from leukemia. I believe he contacted leukemia uh, from the days in the early 50s when his army friends would invite him up to see the nuclear blast above ground blast at uh, Yucca Flats in right. Nevada. And in those days, you know, they didn't use any protection. All they had was eye protection. And, of course, the incubation period for um, leukemia is, uh, for radiation, is 30 years. So uh, that was about the time it took him. And took him real fast. I think it was only about 90 days from the day he started to get sick until he was gone. Uh, when he died, he uh, commanded uh, his uh, wife to finish the Lear Fan uh, project, which he did. And uh, of course, I was very skeptical of uh, the viability, and I told him that, and uh, he didn't appreciate my ideas. And, mm. Uh, anyway, uh, Bob went on it and uh, kept borrowing money and trying to get it into uh, production. But uh, they finally went bankrupt, owing about $400 million. And uh, they only made three articles, uh, uh, and two of which were flying, and one was a test vehicle. Uh, and it never, never was successful in any way. But I've always wanted to be a pilot. My dad very much disliked that. He said, why do you want to be a pilot? And he said, it's just like a bus driver. <laughs> and uh, in those days, I wasn't smart enough to say, well, what's the matter being with a bus driver? Uh, but uh, he tried to talk me into being a lawyer or a doctor, and he said, and then you can own your own airplane. And I said, I don't want to own my own airplane. I want to, I want to fly it for somebody else. So we parted ways, and uh, when he passed away, he didn't remember me in his will, which is fine with me because money has never meant that much to me. Right. You guys had a very up-and-down relationship, John. Pardon? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, um... I uh, I started out as a commercial pilot, 18 years old, and uh, during my career, worked for 34 different aviation companies and airlines, and had a lot of fun. Went a lot of places with a lot of different airplanes, and uh, retired in 2001. Right, and of course, once you started being more vocal about some of the things that we're going to talk about here tonight. That's when, I guess you can say, trouble really arose for you. You even were fired at one time because of this. Yeah, and uh, 1985 was when my interest got peaked in UFOs. And, and before that, I wasn't sure they existed, and I wasn't that interested anyway. But in 1985, I was uh, running a reunion uh, here in Las Vegas for uh, Asia. And... Uh, either military pilots or people that worked for different companies there like Bird and Son and Air America and Continental Air Services Inc. And I ran into a friend of mine who uh, 
uh, was flying in at Laos at the time, and we started talking. I said, "We're we're all uh, have you been since I last seen you?" And one of the places he mentioned was Bentwaters, and I said, "Oh, uh, yeah, Bentwaters. That's north of London. That's where that saucer supposedly landed in." On Christmas 1980, he said, no, John, not supposedly, uh, it did land, and, uh, I didn't get to see it because I was confined to my quarters, but I know the guys who did, and it's a very interesting story, and so I said, you mean the stuff is true about flying saucers? He said, yes, it is. So that's when my interest got peaked, and, uh, uh, that was 1985, and I started collecting information. In those days, we didn't have a, uh, an Internet, and uh, I did a lot of driving around um, California, Arizona, New Mexico, Colorado, uh, to meet with people who would not talk on the phone but would talk one-on-one -on -one about their experiences. And uh, uh, I had gathered so much information uh, that uh, I wrote the infamous uh, Lear Hypothesis in 1986, uh, in which I expressed what I thought was going on with uh, with the UFO field. And uh, after that, I seemed to, everything I seemed to do uh, seemed to get me more, closer to more information. Uh, and I met Bob Lazar, and uh, at that time he was uh, <clears throat> he was not working for Los Alamos National Labs, which oh, he had been way, working for for many years. By the way, John, I, just let me just let me stop you for one quick moment and quickly ask you: During this time period in your life, did your father ever say anything to you about this subject? No, I can't remember him saying. He might have mentioned it, but. Uh, <clears throat> but uh, there was no no real story or anything. And uh, in 1952, yes. Lear Incorporated, his company, was selected as the prime contractor by the Pentagon for Andy Grav, and uh, they had that contract for four years and completed it in 1956. <clears throat> and uh, we had flying saucers in 1956, but. In 1953, uh, he went down to Bogota and gave an interview to the press down in South America, and they started asking him about UFOs, and he told them what he thought. And uh, the uh, the Pentagon was extremely unhappy with him when he got back, and they kicked him out of the program. And even though Lear Incorporated had the contract, and there was other people working on it, he the president, chairman of the board, could not have anything to do with it. And I imagine they told him that if he breathed the word about it, uh, they would kill his family, his wife, his kids, uh, his grandparents, his mother and father, his dog, his parakeet, his cat, and everything, everybody wow. else. And I'm pretty sure that's why he never mentioned it. At least when I was around uh, in those days, there he had a couple of friends that had seen him, TWA pilots, uh, and they used to talk about it, but he, he never said very much. Well, I understand why he wouldn't be very vocal about that subject if they did, in fact, threaten him. My goodness. Speaking of, speaking well, of which, he, uh, oh, go ahead, go ahead. 
Yeah, they uh, made certain that he was never going to mention anything about it. Now, it's very interesting here that uh, just recently I came upon a tape on the Internet, YouTube. Yes. And it's called uh, the Bonson UFO video. And it's a 22-minute home movie of my dad uh, working on anti-graph technology in a private laboratory, actually in the Bonson uh, laboratory, uh, with T-Towns and, uh, um, and a lot of other people who were uh, very involved in uh, UFOs and anti-graph technology. And it it doesn't have any sound except for some music, and it has a lot of uh, video or film in this laboratory, and it shows <clears throat> what they were doing. And every couple of minutes, it has a picture of a calendar, and the dates are being marked off uh, and circled as if they were something very important to them. Uh, and I just came across this video about six months ago, and you go to YouTube, and it's a Bonson video. That's B-A-H-N-S-O-N, Bonson video. And uh, uh, that was a very interesting video there. Oh, wow. Yeah, so I'm going to have to look that up after the interview here. But, yes, I'll take your word for it. That does sound pretty fascinating to check out. And uh, speaking of which, just uh, when was it? The day before yesterday, I believe you were doing some recording for some sort of, what was that, a TV show or a documentary about 9-11? Yes. It's a group of people that uh, got together and were uh, going to brief President Trump on what actually happened on 9-11. And I think there were at least... 20 or 30 of us, the people who really, really knew what the bottom line was and were experts in their own field, uh, and they were invited to um, write a paper, uh, which would be uh, all put together in one document. I think it ended up being 101 pages, uh, and then it was uh, uh, given to President Trump two weeks ago, and then then after that, they decided to do uh, a video and have 20 of these people give a three-minute summary of their views on what they thought happened on uh, 9-11. Right. And, of course, my uh, area of expertise was in uh, aviation. And uh, in 19, let's see, in 2000... It would have been uh, in January of 2008, I submitted a 13-page affidavit uh, to the Southern District of uh, New York, Court District, uh, in support of Morgan Reynolds, um, Morgan Reynolds' quid-am complaint, which he had filed, and... Uh, and uh, I explained te- technically why it was impossible uh, for a Boeing 767 uh, to have uh, flown at those speeds that, uh, uh, that NIST said it had. And 
these, I gave the, uh, I gave the summary of, of why it couldn't have been, uh, an airplane. I end up by saying, uh, that for somebody with limited piloting experience, it was impossible to take over a glass cockpit Boeing 767, fly it a hundred miles to New York, do a hundred and eighty degree, hundred and eighty degree turn at Coltsbeck, descend twenty thousand feet, and at five hundred miles an hour hit a target two hundred and eight feet wide, dead center at five hundred miles an hour. I mean, just absolutely ridiculous. That's at the height yes. of my career. I could have not done anything like that. Yeah, the physics don't add up to you, and even you know this is erroneous. Now, what did you say? I didn't hear. Oh, I said even you know this was erroneous. All these, oh yeah, absolutely. And uh, I wrote my affidavit. It was in uh, addition to Morgan Reynolds' crime complaint, which was a suit. Uh, against the 20 plus different companies that participated, uh, in the 9-11. That was Boeing, uh, SIAC, uh, United Airlines, uh, American Airlines, uh, ERA, uh, uh, Research Project who, uh, designed and built direct energy weapons. And, uh, what happened is the, the judge, uh, his, his name was George P. Davis. Uh, I think that was his name. No, Daniels. Toy B. Daniels. Uh, dismissed the case with prejudice and, uh, not knowing a thing about it or caring a thing about it. Uh, he didn't have the courage, the moral courage, uh, to, uh, go in and, and, uh, let this suit happen. So he just, uh, dismissed it. Wow. Yeah, that's interesting. I didn't know any of this was uh, going on. Um, with you, John, either, by the way, the whole recording. And also, another thing that just came to mind very randomly here was when you discussed 9-11 with Art Bell, he was very, uh, it was very rough for him to talk about this. And understandable at the time, most people didn't really want to believe that the government could have possibly had had knowledge prior or even helped with this event. 100% correct. People didn't want to believe that their government would do such a thing, and neither did Art Bell. And he kept saying over and over and over, I can't believe that our president had anything to do with this. Well, nobody said the president had anything to do with this. Correct. It, yeah. it was certainly insiders, but not necessarily the president. They wouldn't have, they wouldn't have briefed him on on this, mainly for uh, deniability. But I had been on his show many, many times over the years, and I believe it was in 2002 uh, that we parted ways over this issue. It was because of 9-11? And, and he wow. said, uh, after that, he started calling me a wingnut. <laughs> and oh, that's good. On the, on the website, which was just cranking up in those times, my... A uh, little icon was a uh, was a wing nut that would spin up and down. Yes, and uh, I wow, I don't recall that was the reason why that you two parted ways, but 
Yeah, it sounds what did like. What you think it was? Well, no, well, I didn't know exactly. And to be honest with you, uh, at one point I even had unfriended Art, uh, maybe about a year or two ago, because of uh, some of his uh, rantings online. I was just getting a little, I was just getting a little annoyed, and I was starting to unfriend lots of people, and Art was one of them, and now I feel terrible about it. So I had to make it public, and of course, Art passed away recently. And uh, everyone is still a bit shocked. They can't believe he passed. Yeah. Or how he passed, which was an overdose of oxycodone and several other drugs. Yes, that is terrible. And, of course, you yourself have been dealing with uh, a lot of pain, if I remember in the past, John, with, uh, what was it, um, your back yeah, I broke my back and I had many uh, many uh, physical problems. I went into the hospital in 2008, and I was in and out of the hospital for about uh, four years. And uh, when I came out, uh, they hadn't done much to relieve the pain. And uh, my doctor put me on methadone and oxycodone, which I took for many years, and uh, one year ago, May 31st, <clears throat> the Drug Enforcement Administration uh, put out a edict that uh, anybody taking uh, opioids had to get that prescription from uh, pain uh, management specialists. <clears throat> and so my doctor uh, assigned me a pain management specialist. I went in uh, May 31st. 2017, gave them a urine sample uh, and picked up my prescription. And two days later, the doctor calls Marilyn, my wife, and said they can't handle me anymore because the drug scan of the urine test showed that I was taking methamphetamine. Well, that is so absolutely outrageously impossible. You know, I hadn't left my den for 10 years. I wouldn't know where to get that kind of a drug. If I got it, I wouldn't know how to take it. Yes. And I certainly wouldn't be taking it in addition to oxycodone and methadone. But the the long long of the short of it was uh, that uh, the drug scan showed I was taking huge amounts of methamphetamine and, uh, of course, when the pharmacy found out about it, uh, they refused to give, any, give me any more opioids uh, under penalty of law. And uh, I went into involuntary detox, uh, I think, July 23rd of last year and uh, almost passed away. If it hadn't been for my good friend, Bob Lazar, uh, I wouldn't be here today, but what happened is after fighting the de- involuntary detox for three weeks, I yes. called Bob and said, I'm not going to make it, Bob. And uh, he had been following my problem. I said, you know, I just can't handle it anymore. This detox is getting to me, and I can't get any more oxycodone. And he said, well, try this that we've just heard about. It's a... Um, it's a herb from Southeast Asia. It's called Kratom, K-R-A-T-O-M, uh, distributed mostly out of uh, Oregon. 
and uh, see if that'll help you. So uh, I started taking Kratom, and it instantly made me feel better. Uh, and I was able to cope with the detox, and I've been off for, uh, let's see, it's August 14th, so I've been off for 13 months now. And I have no desire for opiates. I wouldn't take it even if, if it was offered me. Uh, but I do use Kratom, which you can get on the web, on the web. And, uh, it has all the properties and benefits of oxycodone, but no opioids. And, uh, of course, because it is so helpful, uh, the opioid, uh, uh, produced has dropped drastically along with the sales and big pharma is going nuts and they have uh they essentially own the uh the drug enforcement administration uh the federal drug administration and cdc uh and uh they're trying to make an effort to <laughs> make they're them a schedule one drug the oh, same wow. as heroin and uh, that's terrible and um, they might make it, but you know they tried it about a year ago, and the uh, the White House got so many letters. I think it was over. I can't remember what the figure was. Hundreds of thousands of letters of people supporting it, not only from people uh, using it, but doctors and lawyers uh, saying the benefits of this. So the DEA backed off, and I have been very quiet since then. intoxicating marijuana extracts out there that you can use that I believe would be helpful uh, for everyone. Yeah, it could. I uh, don't try it, and uh, I don't use marijuana for uh, for the simple reason it doesn't do anything for me except make me feel bad. <laughs> it makes you feel bad. <laughs> so I'm not a candidate for uh, marijuana. Understood, understood. And... I did want to leap back in time yet again here uh, and, and go into uh, Bob Lazar, since you did mention him, and we were talking about that. Uh, until I, I cut you off there, and I do apologize, um, let's start uh, something current before we go back in time. When was the last time you talked to um, our good friend Bob Lazar? Uh, I think a week ago. Uh, I forget what the occasion was, but... Uh he has a, a scientific supply shop in uh, Lanesburg, Michigan, uh, called uh, Scientific Nuclear or 
at the different universities and schools and companies. Very good. I'm glad you are still in communication with our friend Bob Lazar. And oh, yeah. yeah. I'm glad he's still active out there. He's what? I, I said I'm glad he's still very active out there. Yeah. Um, yeah, he lives in uh, uh, Michigan and uh, operates out of there. Very good, very good. And, of course, I recall... Um, one of the last things we, we did talk about was a little bit about your photograph you took of Groom Lake. I believe you're the only person who had taken this photo. Now, what was that photograph about, Like A Groom Lake. Oh, yeah. Um, the ones I posted on... Your website, right. On website, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was in 1977, and... Uh, I was watching TV one evening, and uh, there was a news story that said uh, security leak at the test site, and I think they actually mentioned Groom Lake. And so I called up the studio the next day and got a hold of the uh, the uh, production uh, manager and uh, asked him a little bit about the story and asked him if we could have lunch. And that happened to be Bob Stoldow, and I think he's uh, vice president or something of, of uh, Channel 8 here. Uh, but anyway, back in 77, we went to lunch, and uh, we talked about Groom Lake and uh, his thoughts on it. He says... Uh, I believe that uh, United Press International Associated Press are going to hike in next week uh, and expose it. And uh, when he said that, I thought, well, smoke, holy smoke, that's, I wanted to, uh, to hike in there. And uh, so I thought I'd do that before uh, the news people did. And uh, the following week, I, I was working for an airline here in Las Vegas called Bonanza Airlines, and uh, on a particular Monday, we weren't flying, uh, so I called up a, a couple of the guys, and I said, uh, do you want to go on a secret mission? And they said, of course. So we left at 5 o'clock in the morning, drove up to Groom Lake, and I, of course, in 1977, <laughs> there were no gates or anything. You could drive right up to the lake, lake bed, and the lake uh, was full of water at that time. And uh, we took, uh, I took uh, a roll of, uh, in those days I was shooting uh, black and white, and I took a roll of 36. And about the time that um, uh, I was able to uh, finish this roll, we saw some uh, trucks uh, across the uh way they were making a little dust trail headed our way. So uh, I knew they were going to take the film. So what I did is I reround the film that was in the uh, camera and uh, took the little cartridge in uh, 
in the door of my Ligon Continental, I pulled out the ace trade, put the film in the in the little uh, opening there, and then put the ace trade back on. Then I took another brand new roll of film, ran it to the camera, took the identical uh, same 36 pictures, uh, and then waited. And of course, security comes up, and uh, there's two trucks. There's a security truck. And in front of him is just a, a worker. And so the security guy gets out. There's a little chain across two poles there. He lets the guy out. And, uh, uh, and, uh, he turns around to hook up the chain and he sees us. Here, there we are sitting with my, on, in front of my, Lincoln Continental, and I got to my two friends with this, and I've got the camera mounted on a tripod. He said, "Are you guys from the news?" And <laughs> we said, "No, we're we're just here exploring the desert." I said, "I guess we're not supposed to be here." He said, "Hell no, you're not supposed to be here." <laughs> right. So he called uh, security, and they came out, and I guess you know they were there for about an hour questioning us and. All kinds of things. And then they told us, okay, now here's the deal. You guys are going to leave here right now and go back to Vegas. And next week, somebody will call you and you'll get a briefing and then you'll get a debriefing. And uh, so we drove home and never heard from them again. There was never any briefing, never any debriefing. And uh, the only time it, the subject ever came up again was in 1979. I got a job flying for the Department of Energy, and I had to have a queue clearance. And uh, during the briefing they give you, when you get a clearance like that, the subject came up of of the uh, the issue and what happened at Groom Lake. That, that, that's the last I ever heard of it. Interesting. And how exactly were you approached to work for the CIA, if you don't mind me asking? Pardon? Um, how were you approached to join the CIA, by the way? I didn't know I was working for them. I was working for a company in Florida ferrying airplanes to Vietnam from the factory in Wichita, Kansas. And uh, somebody mentioned... Uh, on one of the overnight stops there that, that this was a CIA operation. And of course it made sense because uh, we were treated uh, differently than just being regular pilots. And uh, and that, that's how I found out. So understood. Uh, so, so I did that for, so did that for <laughs> four years. Understood, understood. So, so no trips to Mena, Arkansas then? <laughs> no. <laughs> Understood. I stuck understood. to the Pacific. Um, we pick up the new forward air control airplanes in Wichita, uh, fly to Hamilton Air Force Base in, uh, in San Francisco, and then to uh, Hickam Air Force Base in Honolulu, then to Midway Island, uh, Wake Island, Guam, the Philippines, Clark Air Force Base, and then delivered in-country to Nha Trang in uh, South Vietnam. Yeah, it seems like those were great times for you, and you were even uh, shot down. Uh, yeah, later, 
I had gone to Cambodia to fly uh, for an airline there, and I was a year there flying out of Phnom Penh. And then I went up to fly in um, Binchin in Laos uh, for the CIA. There were two companies up there that flew for the agency. One was Air America, and the other was Continental Air Services. Uh, I worked for Continental Services. I flew Curtis C-46s and uh, De Havilland Twin Otters. And uh, both of those airplanes were used to uh, supply um, supply uh, both rice and ammunition uh, to uh, uh, to the uh, army, which was supported. Just a second, Marilyn. Can you put that in the refrigerator, please? Thank you. And John, taking a little break there. No worries. So, uh, uh, what was I talking about? You were talking about your uh, trip uh, when you were uh, shot down. Oh, yeah. Uh, so, uh, we flew Twin Otters and C-46s, and uh, both airplanes were used to supply uh, rice uh, to the uh, villagers that were forced to move south in Laos and uh, hard rice, hard rice is a euphemism for guns and ammunition, and uh, we supplied those to the the army, which of course was led by General Vang Pao, who was the CIA's fair-haired boy in charge of um, the uh, the Laotian army, and uh, we were. Delivering, I was flying the Twin Otter, and uh, it's a cargo turboprop airplane made in Canada, and its capacity was uh, six uh, loads uh, of equipment. And what would happen is they were loaded into the airplane at the uh, at whatever base you were operating out of, and they would fly up to where the soldiers were and after ground attack and identify or uh, ground um, connection, uh, and you identified who you were dropping to. Uh, we'd fly over, and uh, on each pass, uh, when you were directly over. The soldiers, you would give a, uh, a signal to the guy in the back, and he would push a box out, which had a big parachute. They call them G7s, uh, and they would instantly inflate, and uh, the package would uh, land safely on the ground. So we went in, and we had delivered uh, four of these packages, and on the fifth pass, we made our turn after we pushed it out. Uh, the guy in back, we call them kickers because they kicked the stuff out. Uh, came yelling up in front of the cop, cop. And we looked back and uh, the entire fuselage was filled with uh, a spray, a foam that smelled exactly like gasoline or jet fuel which is what it was, and what had happened is they had shot the right engine out, including the strut where the fuel line was, and the fuel was spraying out and winding around in back of the airplane, and because of the airflow in this cargo airplane, uh, it would come back in the cargo door and fill the airplane up with gasoline fumes, and of course... Um, 
Southeast Asia, there's a, uh, a couple of C-130s that used to orbit with all different kinds of radios and equipment and other uh, support equipment, and uh, <clears throat> they were there to help anybody who needed help. For instance, their call sign in the daytime was cricket, and at nighttime, at nighttime it was moonbeam. And if you got into trouble, you'd call them and, and say, uh, cricket, uh, this is Pop Golf Victor, the identification of your airplane. Uh, we've just been hit. We're heading south. Uh, that kind of information, of course. Uh, Cricket would then alert uh, the rescue troops or rescue airplanes and helicopters uh, and start heading your way. But the problem was when we got hit, here's an airplane totally full of atomized fuel, and I knew that as soon as I pressed that mic button, there would be a very tiny spark, but enough to blow everything up. And uh, so my choice was, do I get help from Cricket or or ensure that the airplane can't blow up by not saying anything? And I decided to go ahead and try it, and I covered up the microphone uh, real carefully with my hands and my uh, uh, and my shirt, and managed to get the report out. And uh, we managed to get into a a base and uh, get the airplane repair. And we were we were in the uh, air by the next morning. Wow. I'm not even sure how you're even able to be a pilot, John. I'm a little scared of flying, to be honest with you. I have to kind of have a drink or two uh, to get on an airplane. Really? Yeah. I mean, I'll, I'll have to. I have to do something to get on there. I, I get very anxious. Well, I always loved flying, and it was part of me. And uh, I don't know whether I was a pilot in a previous life, but uh, it was, uh, yeah. I loved it and I loved flying different airplanes in different places. Uh, and I really enjoyed my career. I, I totaled out with uh, 19,600 hours and, uh, 44 years of flying and, uh, got a lot of stories, had a lot of fun, but I'm done with it now. I don't even go flying. And the main reason I don't go flying is because I don't want to have to subject myself to the, uh, to the inhumanities, the ungraciousness of, uh, TSA. Uh, it's yes. just not in me to, to go through all it, to take my shoes off to prove that I don't have any weapons <laughs> on board yes. an airliner, so I just don't bother going. I don't blame you for that. It is quite tedious just going to an airport, especially nowadays. And, you know, we'll jump into a lot of these things, but um, just curious, what was the catalyst for your interest in UFOs and extraterrestrials? Was it the sighting you had when you were flying, John, that first sparked your interest in this and being almost obsessed with this subject? I mean, I, I am myself pretty obsessed with this, my, uh, too, John, so I don't mean that in a negative way. Yeah, it was nothing I saw when I flew. It was, uh, like I said, meeting the pilot that I'd known in Southeast Asia, and he told me that the Bentwaters incident was true, that a saucer had landed 
at this U.S. Air Force base north of London, and there had been three aliens in it who got out and walked around, and, and it had been filmed by the Air Force, uh, and uh, Colonel, uh, how do I ever forget his name, uh, and uh, it was a real incident, and that's what, you know, I thought, it's real? I mean, there are flying saucers? And uh, when my friend said yes, then I knew this was something that I'd have to uh, get into and uh, find out about it. And uh, it really took over my life uh, to the point where uh, my wife was going nuts because I was getting phone calls nonstop. People were knocking on the door nonstop. And it was driving her nuts. So <laughs> yes, I can imagine. At one point, she hid all my files and changed my phone numbers. <laughs> oh my! And uh, put me out of business for a while. But by through some freak accident, I had been over from, uh, on a trip uh, in Germany, and I called her up, and she said, "Well." I saw him, but I still don't believe him. Uh, she had been working out in the backyard here in Las Vegas up on uh, Sunrise Mountain, and she had been uh, planting some flowers, and two of these saucers, these craft, came out of the mountain, out of Sunrise Mountain, and flew south about halfway up the mountain, and uh, they had disappeared. And uh, my daughter, eight-year-old daughter, Jackie, was there, and uh, watched it too and uh, of course since she saw it she had a little bit different uh, view on it and maybe a little bit of compassion and, and that I wasn't nuts but uh, because she had seen him uh, but uh, that helped me out a little bit understood understood and you know something just came to my mind and I'm not quite sure if I've ever asked you about that and that's the Phoenix Lights incident um, do you have any recollection of that uh, sighting, John? What what sighting? The Great Phoenix Light sighting. Oh, uh, well, a friend of mine, a southeast or southwest uh, pilot, had been there, and he told me, yeah, it was definitely a uh, strange craft. He said they were flying a missing man war formation, and... Uh, so he didn't ever know of any extraterrestrials flying missing man formation. So it was probably us uh, in some of our unknown uh, exotic uh, aircraft we have flying. Yes, and of course you've been to many different sort of top-level bases in your time and have gotten information. And going back to E.T., um, Los Alamos apparently had a, an, an alien there. Um, do you have any more info on that? Uh, info on what? On the alleged alien that was at Los Alamos base. No, there was supposed to have been uh, one or two of the ETs that were recovered from the Roswell crash that uh, that just uh, were incarcerated at Los Alamos National Labs, and it was in a facility called uh, YY-2. And uh, 
I used to explore all around uh, Los Alamos. I'd drive over there with Bob. He had a, a contract to rebuild alpha probes. So their alpha probes are radiation probes, and every couple of months he'd get a, a contract to go in and repair three or four hundred of them. And uh, I would go with him. He'd drive from Las Vegas. Uh, it was about a 14-hour drive uh, east to Albuquerque and then north to Santa Fe and then northwest to Los Alamos. And uh, it would take us about 12 hours to rebuild these 400 alpha probes. And then we'd... Uh, if we had any extra time, we'd drive around Los Alamos, and he would show me all the places that he worked and, and all the hidden places. And there was a hidden place uh, just south of the McDonald's, and you had to get there by a very, uh, a very uh, interesting way, following roads and turning here and going down dirt roads and you get down to this one place and it was a huge door uh, it was about 30 feet high and about 30 feet wide it was a big metal door and it was it was in the side of a mountain and uh, there was a huge gate there uh, which was uh, had guards on it and uh, I never saw anything go in or out and I never saw it open but uh Whatever he used for was something uh, very big and uh, very secret. Very interesting, very interesting, yes. And, you know, one of the last things we did talk about when you were here were all these different massive underground bases out there. And, you know, that that does remind me, I did have, uh, I, well, before I, I go on, I, I just wanted to quickly add that Las Vegas and uh, New Mexico these places are just, for some reason, filled with activity. Wouldn't you agree, John? Yeah, absolutely. When I was flying for the Department of Energy uh, in 1980, 1981, uh, my job was to get up at 3 o'clock in the morning and get in uh, uh, OB-10 Bronco, which is a North American turboprop, and uh, fly up to the Nevada test site, and I would fly around the perimeter of where they used to do the underground nuclear tests. And uh, my job was to give them the wind direction and wind speed from ground level up to 10,000 feet. And the reason they needed that was they wanted to be sure in case when they set the shot off that if it vented, that it wasn't going to blow towards Las Vegas. And they didn't care if it blew north, but they didn't want it blowing towards Las Vegas. So uh, for the two or three hours before they detonated the nukes, uh, I would fly the perimeter of the area where they had built the uh, the hole and put the, the uh, nuke down about a mile or so and uh, radio in the... Uh, wind direction and wind speed. Well, during this time, uh, it gave me a pretty good view of a lot of interesting places now. 
unfortunately, Groom Lake was not one of them because it was too far out in the the northeast to get a good view of it. But uh, I saw other other places where there was a lot of construction going on, uh, specifically uh, on the Paiute Mesa, which is in the dead center of the Nevada test site, and uh, that whole area was. Uh, very white, white in color, and I couldn't figure out what I was looking at because it was like, looked like, you know, 70 or 80 acres of uh, just white stuff, and I, I didn't know what it was. And I found out later, maybe 10 years later, that <clears throat> what they had done was they were building a secret base called Sandia, and it was exactly halfway between the Tonopah Test Range and Groom Lake. And uh, they had taken off the top of a mountain and built the base inside of the mountain and then put the top back on uh, the mountain and covered up the base. And uh, it was a huge area. In addition to the the laboratories and the part that I'm telling you about right now, there was another uh, construction project right next to it, and uh, these were five holes. And what they had done is they'd set off very clean nuclear blasts, five of them, and then they tunneled down from the surface down a mile below to where the the opening was, and they started building uh, quarters where people could live, uh, not only housing but places to eat and uh, places to uh, exercise and uh, all kinds of facilities, and there was five of them, and each one held 15,000 armed combat troops. So, in the addition to all the scientists that worked at Sandia on a daily basis, which was 10, which was 2,000, they had 75,000 armed combat troops on duty at all times. Now, what they were on duty for, I don't know. I don't know who would be attack, attacking them. Uh, but anyway, that's what they were there for. So when they uh, finished up building this huge facility, would have been about 1985, 86, they had to figure out a way to move 2,000 people a day up to Sandia to work and back to Las Vegas at night when they were done working. And that's a lot of people. And their problem was they couldn't use airplanes because it would tip off uh, other uh, other people that there was something big going on and they didn't want anybody to know anything about it. So uh, they couldn't use buses or cars, so what they ended up was doing was building a uh, super-secret maglev high-speed subway from the Luxor Hotel and Casino to the Bellagio Hotel and Casino to Sandia. Yeah, this is where and I wanted to. The, yeah, this is where I wanted to connect things here with you, John. Um, when I mentioned interesting sites in Vegas, like like you said, the fake casino that hides that massive underground construction, the super secret subway that you speak of, um, very interesting stuff. 
Yeah, no, what they did is they had, uh, Las Vegas had just finished raising uh, the stardust, that is demolishing it, and there were 74 acres of vacant land, and it was exactly where they were going to use uh, to tunnel down and build the subway because, you know, you build the subway from the top, not from the inside. So you have to have a large area uh, where you can move all these tunneling pieces of equipment and uh, tunnels down in there and, uh, you know, places for people to uh, meet and pick up their equipment and go down inside the earth to build these uh, tunnels. And what they did is, of course, this is right on the strip, and people would have seen this, so to hide it, Boyd Construction, uh, who was in charge of it, uh, built a fake casino called Echelon. And they told everybody that they're building a casino, and it was going to be big and beautiful, and da-da-da-da-da. And all it was was to hide the construction from the people moving up and down Las Vegas Boulevard, the people moving up and down Industrial Road, and the, the cars and people moving on uh, Desert Inn Road. And uh, that's all it was for. And um, the people that worked on this fake casino, they only built the framework. They didn't build anything inside. Right. right. Uh, they were told that when they when they reported for work that morning that they were not to look over the side towards the empty lot. Under any circumstance, don't look over because they said we have CIA sharpshooters with high-powered rifles that will kill you instantly. Now I don't know how they got that approved with OSHA, but. Uh, but uh, apparently nobody looked over and nobody got killed, at least that I know of. Uh, but they did get this this huge subway, massive subway project uh, built, and it operates, you know, it operates today, every day. And uh, not only that, there's not only, it doesn't only go to uh, uh, Sandia, it goes to Groom Lake, Tonopah, and several secret bases that are north of Las Vegas. There's one that's right on the Utah-Nevada border, 44 miles south of Wendover, Utah, and that's where all the, uh, or many of the black triangles fly out of. And uh, it's a huge, huge base there, and it's hidden by holograms. And uh, holograms hide things that are, that are in uh, plain sight, and uh, they use that to hide these secret bases uh, all over the U.S., and uh, they use it to hide up there. Yes, and on the last episode, we did talk a little bit about the secret underground uh, naval facility, which is a bit outside of Vegas, I recall. Uh, what is it you said it went? Oh, the... The underground facility, perhaps closer to Reno, I think the last time we talked, we discussed the U.S. Navy submarine base that's in the desert. Oh, yeah, that's the Navy places. submarine base mm-hmm. uh, at Hawthorne, Nevada. Right. And uh, they found out, the U.S. Navy found out about 40 years ago that 
the seven western states of the United States uh, sits on a shelf uh, floating on the Pacific Ocean so that uh, submarines can go under these seven western states and go anywhere they want and they can have access to the ground if somebody builds uh, an elevator from uh, ground level uh, to the Pacific Ocean. In the case of um, Hawthorne, it goes down 3,200 feet because 3,200 feet is the altitude of Hawthorne. And to get down to the Pacific Ocean, you think you have a elevator that goes down 3,200 feet. And there's a huge uh, submarine base under there. There's maybe five or ten nuclear submarines uh, parked there at all times uh, in and out. And, and what they do there is uh, ever since submarines came into use, uh, they've had to have specific uh, weapons, missiles, uh, for those submarines. And it was built in an underground secret facility to the north and west of Hawthorne. And it was hidden in the mountains. And what would they do is when they finished production, they would have to ship it north through Reno to Alameda in San Francisco Bay or south through Las Vegas to San Diego uh, to the Navy Station down there. And, of course, this... Uh, they didn't want it that visible. People could see the trucks moving. They didn't know it was on them, but they wanted that secret. So about that time, they discovered the, uh, the Pacific Ocean under, was under the shelf of the seven western states, and they built an elevator. Uh, and instead of moving the uh, weapons and missiles on the ground, on the highways, they just took it in the elevator down to the Pacific Ocean and loaded it there. And the submarines would enter uh, this shelved area uh, from two places. One was at uh, Monterey Bay and the other was at uh, Malibu. And those are the two main entrances for the, the uh, underground, underwater areas. And when you drive into Hawthorne, uh, there's a big sign there that says Naval Undersea Warfare Center. And for years, I would see that sign, and I'm thinking, Warfare Center, what are they talking about? There's a lake here. It's 15 miles long and 100 feet deep, and they're going to use that to train under warfare, uh, underwater warfare uh, ships. Yeah, that's confusing. Right. And only years later did I find out, uh, no, what, what they meant was, uh, there's access to the Pacific Ocean and, uh, there's, uh, submarines, uh, pens under there. Now, why they chose to, uh, advertise that, I don't know. Um, they, um, uh, they, they have, openings, elevator areas all over these seven western states. You could be driving out in the middle of Colorado and uh, see a sign uh, undersea naval warfare center. And that's where one of the elevators is. And I don't know why they 
Joe knows that. I guess they wouldn't believe that anybody in their wildest imagination would believe <laughs> that there's elevators that go down to the Pacific Ocean at this particular location. You know, I tend to believe you, John. I don't, I don't think any of this is simply made up whatsoever. I think these things do exist out there, and there, there are many of them. I, I did want to discuss the moon with you. Um, lots of discussion going on there lately, especially in the political realm. Uh, Mike Pence has been talking a lot about this uh, alleged Trump space force. Um, what do you make of this, John? Well, there's two schools of thought. First of all, there's been a space force for 40 years, and it's run by the Navy, and it's huge. Uh, and it was financed by the faked Apollo missions, the faked Mercury, Gemini, and Apollo missions that NASA run in the 60s. And that $40 billion was siphoned off to use for um, the Navy projects, uh, which they started building in those days and have been building ever since. And uh, they have uh, enormous orbiting uh, weapons, direct energy weapons, uh, that they use to level buildings, uh, one, two, and seven, uh, during 9-11 and the Mira building and to start the California, California fires. Uh, they also have orbiting laboratories and the laboratories, they make hull material for aircraft carriers and submarines. And this whole material has to be made in zero gravity and uh, is used uh, in place of uh, other material because it's lighter uh, and it's stronger. And with a small electrical charge, it can keep the ocean water between five and seven centimeters away from the hull. Now, as you know, the limit speed for any hold replacement ship is 1.34 times the square root of the waterline, which limits just about anything to about 45 knots. But these new aircraft carriers, like the Gerald Ford, was just launched, and the USS Colorado was just launched, uh, those ships can go 100 knots because there's no drag. Because when you use this uh, material called D.D, made in, in orbit, uh, it keeps, with a small electrical charge, it keeps the uh, the water away from the hull when there's essentially no drag. So all they need is big propellers. Now, on some rate, they don't use propellers anymore. They, need, they have a, a water propulsion system that's stronger and quieter. Uh, but on aircraft carriers, they still use the uh, propellers. And uh, they have all this new technology, and you'll notice when the Navy does announce the launching of the USS Colorado, and it's full of top, uh, real top secret uh, technology, advanced, super advanced technology, they can't tell you what the technology is, but... Unfortunately, I can't, and there's three parts of the technology. One is the D.D. for the hull, and the other is they use fusion engines. Now, we're told, the public is told that fusion will not be uh, available for another decade. Uh, and in fact, we've been using it for the last 14 years. And fusion, of course, is much more efficient than fission. 
I use three or five fission reactors in a submarine, we would only need two to do the same job in a uh, in an aircraft carrier of uh, fusion engines. And same thing with uh, submarines, uh, where we might only use uh, two uh, fusion reactors. We can get the job done with a, a one fusion reactor. And uh, we have a, a narrow secret club that's uh, used for uh, CO2 delivery. It's about 70 feet long. Uh, it has a fusion reactor for power. I think there's about uh, 24 or 25 people that man this thing. Uh, and there's a 12-man seal delivery unit where they can uh, to deliver seal teams uh, anywhere and everywhere at tremendous speeds. Uh, and it's really a very, very interesting piece of equipment. I've never heard anybody discuss it right. uh, or show pictures of it. Yes. But it's there. So uh, that's all I know. Understood. Thank you for that. And, John, I, I did want to ask you, uh, a bit about this um, latest tragedy, really. I'm sure you understand and have read about this completely, and that's with that airline employee stealing that plane in Seattle. Yeah. Yeah, what, what was that all about? What's your take on that? And, by the way, I do have some audio clips of, of him uh, speaking to the traffic controller. Do you want me to play a clip of that? No, I think we all have- Okay, we heard you heard that. Obviously. Him, but, uh, yes. Okay, good. I wrote a. I don't want to play for my Facebook this morning and telling about uh, the fact that the FAA will never publicize any airline disaster they were caused by pilot suicide, and some of the ones I know about is uh, United Airlines Flight 585 in Colorado City. Um, let's see, I believe in 1991. And uh, what happened was uh, the captain uh, was uh, dating the first officer, a female, and she had caught him the night before with another, uh, a flight attendant. Uh-huh. And uh, so they get in the airplane to go to fly from Denver to Colorado, and they argued all the way down. And uh, so... Just as they're about to land, the female co-pilot says, you know, that she's not going to date him anymore. And he says, well, if I can't have you, nobody can have you. Oh, no. And he rolls the airplane upside down and pulls it through, like the beginning of a split S. And uh, they hit vertically at uh, 350 miles an hour. And, of course, killed everybody on board. And there was a mass frantic effort by the FAA and the NTSB and United Airlines to cover it up and uh, keep that information to the public because they can't have an airline captain uh, killing himself and all passengers on board because he has an issue with the with the uh, co-pilot. And then a few years later, there was a similar accident in Pittsburgh with uh, U.S. Air 
727 flight 427, and the identical uh, accident happened where, for whatever reason, the captain rolled the airplane upside down and then pulled it through. And the beginning was split out, and they hit vertically. And another frantic effort by the FAA and NTSB to cover it up. And this one, uh, they decided to blame the odd amper, uh, which, uh, you know, my father many years ago was one of the main inventors of the odd amper. And so I know quite a bit about it. And I know there's no possible way that a yacht amper could be responsible for rolling a plane inverted <laughs> and pulling it through. It's not going to happen. Uh, but then uh, I also mentioned uh, how far the FAA and NTSB will go to cover up the truth, whereas if you remember Flight 800, uh, TWA Boeing 747, off the coast of Long Island was accidentally shot down by a U.S. Navy submarine. They were using it for target practice, and uh, the missile got away from them. Uh, and it killed, it blew the 747 up and killed everybody on board. And there was such a massive, frantic effort to cover it up. The uh, President Clinton's security chief, Richard B. Clark, and uh, James Kallstrom, who was assistant director of the FBI, coordinated the main effort uh, to cover it up and and come up with the excuse that a center tank fuel pump, uh, the wiring of which had uh, caused a fire, which caused an explosion, which blew the airplane up, which, of course, was totally false. Uh, and at the time, I happened to be flying uh, Boeing aircraft parts newly manufactured from Wichita to Seattle. And the Boeing guys that we met on both ends were absolutely livid that, that the FAA was trying to blame uh, the fuel pumps for a fire, which Ridiculous. is impossible to happen. Yeah. Uh, but that's what they did, and then um, I said that, you know, people want to know, well, didn't people come forward? I mean, wouldn't somebody admit, well, yes, they tried to tell the truth, but the guy who wrote the book about it was sent to prison, and uh, Boeing, to keep their mouth shut, was paid off with the government okay of the merger with McDonnell Douglas, which they had been in court with uh, over six years, tied up in antitrust uh, suits by the government. And, of course, uh, the government says, if you keep your mouth shut, we'll let you merge with McDonnell Douglas. They did. And then uh, TWA, in order for them to keep their mouth shut, uh, was given a $360 million sweetheart loan, which which didn't have to be paid back. And uh, then, of course, what did the pastors get? They didn't get anything because they were dead. So there's no problem there, right? Right, no doubt. That's the way the cookie crumbles, as they say. Right. Uh, John, I do want to thank you tremendously for being a part of the program we barely scratched the surface here, um, but of course, before I let you go, did we land on the moon in '69? No, absolutely not. I can give you about 25 reasons if you had the time, but the basic reasons are that uh, 
only there so that we can't go anywhere. They don't want us out there. We're not ready to go out there. We're uh, we're just a planet that's in the middle of uh, tribal uh, uh, tribal endeavors here, and uh, they don't want us to take our uh, our ideas of any hate and greed uh, out into the. Uh, Solar system. Our solar system is much, much bigger than NASA tells you. Uh, it's we're told that there's only eight planets out there, and there's actually forty. And there's so much going on out there. Each of the forty planets has civilizations, and each of the forty planets has their own moons, uh, which have other civilizations. And they trade with each other, both technology and and uh, farming technology uh, and food stuff, and, and it's a huge operation, but we're not part of it. We're on Earth, and our sole, uh, sole effort, what we're supposed to do here on Earth is to live our lives with integrity, without envy, without hate, without greed, and to express our love to our families each and every day. That's all we got to do. And... Uh, that's what we're put on earth for. And of course, all of us have lived many lives before and will live many lives after this. And our lives after this will be infinitely better if we learn how to live our lives with integrity without envy, hate, or greed. But meanwhile, ET is not, while we're learning this and while we're educating our souls, they don't want us messing around in the uh, solar system. They too much cause for problems that they don't need. Yeah, very well said. And over the years, you acquired a number of naysayers, the critics. Since that time, I heard you over 20 years ago now. I never once thought you were, um, I, I never felt you were not being genuine in what you spoke about then and now. I'm glad we were able to do this again, John. And it, it's always an honor and privilege when I'm able to bring you on to the program. So I definitely want to bring you on, on here again in the very near future, my friend. Okay, Mike, call me anytime. All right. Take care, John, okay. and God bless. Bye-bye. And there goes Mr. John Lear. If you are listening to this on a replay, keep in mind you can listen every Saturday night, 8 p.m. Pacific Standard Time, 11 p.m. Eastern Time, live on the TuneIn Radio app. And if you enjoy the program and want to help fund this great project, go to michaeldeacon.com and click the little donate button there. And if you stick around long enough, you'll catch me doing another show. With Eric Kajuski, I'm Michael Deacon. Thank you for listening. And with that said, the world is a mysterious place, and life itself is a mystery. Until next time, good night, everybody. Yeah, is that useful to you? Oh, you betcha, yeah. Yeah. The real truth. Was it 1997, Michael?